So listeners, this is Race to Zero, a different kind of outrage and optimism, and therefore we have different music. Now guys, have you heard the new music? Clay hasn't let me hear it, actually. He said, I'll hear it when listeners hear it. I've heard it. It's absolutely brilliant. Listen up. Here we go. Race to zero. <laughs> Buckle up. Race to zero. Five. Four. Three. Two. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Welcome to our Race to Zero series. This is the first episode in which we will explore the road to COP26, the Race to Zero, and how this is the year that we are going to deal with the climate crisis. Thanks for being here. So this is it, the big year, everybody. The countdown to COP26. We've got an international government process. We've got a race to zero. We're going to dig into that. But I just want to start with what's at stake, because I don't know about you guys, but in the last week, what I've seen is a UNFCCC synthesis report that says we're nowhere on track with national commitments and an additional report that came out today from the IEA that pointed out that emissions went up in 2020 after all. What's going on? This isn't how it was supposed to happen. No, it's like the cars are moving in the wrong direction of the race, right? Whoa, 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 <laughs> wait a minute. You turn here. <laughs> this is totally the wrong uh, the wrong direction. So yeah, two reports, uh, one after the other with very bad news. Um, so what what does it take? You know, what what is the information that is being reflected by uh, by those reports and what can change both on the part of governments as well as on the part of everyone else, civil society, finance institutions, corporations. Everyone has got to get moving, in fact, flying in the right direction, which is toward decarbonizing. And that is one of the very important goals of COP26 for everyone to come to show. It's a show and tell how much have we decarbonized and how much more are we going to decarbonize in the next five to 10 years? Those commitments are absolutely key to having any chance of addressing climate change in a timely fashion. Okay, well, let me tell you girls what I think is at the heart of this because I've actually been taught by Christiana uh, how it works. So here's the thing. The governments are all going to come to the COP with their nationally determined contributions. Okay, this is the stock take after five years. How much have they raised their ambition uh, to to decarbonize societies quickly so we can all stay well under two degrees, under one and a half degrees? So here's the thing. It's not about Glasgow. Uh, in November this year. It's actually about us all taking action right now. And I mean right now, like in February, in March, in April. Actually, February was last month, but you know what I mean. In March, in April, in May, in June, July, <laughs> August, September. We want to put the most enormous pressure on all the governments in the world to say, come on, this is like the Olympics for governments. Are you going to turn up and you're going to like run 100 meters in four minutes? No, you're going to... Uh, 
organize your society, you're going to make your policies, you're going to put together your commitments, and you're going to come and you're going to show the world how you can lead, you can build the industries of the future, you can be the best government in the world, and top marks, special gold stars, special medals given for collaborating with other governments to bring in policy regimes that protect our children. Thank you. So did Paul Dickinson just explain to Christiana Figueres how international diplomacy works? And if he did, then Christiana, I want to know how he did. What's his marks out of 10? You know, not bad, not bad, as you would say in the UK. Our little Paul Dickinson's all grown up. Yeah, he's all grown up. I'm like blushing, actually. <laughs> and, and not only did he get the gist of it, the heart of it, but he explained it in a way that is actually very, very understandable to all of us. And that's really important, right? Because we can't continue to speak in gibberish that nobody understands. So thank you, Paul. Brilliant job. So your brilliant well, explanation, what it pointed to there is that this year is about governments coming forward and everyone else coming forward as well. This has to be everyone, everywhere, all the commitment on the table, all of the ambition, and we need to get our arms around all of that. The national government process is the process that is leading up to COP26 and everything else is the race to zero. And that's what we're here to delve into today. And um, just before you tell us who we're going to be talking to, I personally think, you know, we've got, uh, it's pretty clear what we need. Like we need government policy, right? We need lots of incentives and schemes, you know, the Stern and Stiglitz, these two economists saying we need $100 a ton uh, and we need policies. We've never had Nick Stern on this podcast. Jesus, sorry, that's a bit of an aside. Carry on, Paul. Well, thank you, Tom. <laughs> it's just kind of real life programming in real time. Oh, it's just occurred to me that whilst I've been broadcasting to like millions of people, we'll just interrupt Paul sorry. with my latest idea. Sorry, What's wrong Paul. with a pen? What's wrong with a pen? You just write it down, you know? Anyway, sorry. Sorry. I just, I'm just in full flow. Nick you know, Stern, if you're just, listening, we'd like to have you on the podcast. Okay, so look, Paul, long story short, $100 a ton, policies, let's get those, let's get that government regulation in place and then we'll fix this problem. Because Jan is smiling because she's going to make fun of us. Come off mute, Christiana. You're mute, you're on mute. Um, no, I'm I'm laughing because <laughs> <laughs> I think real life programming actually has a lot to say for it. The, and the fact that Paul did not get distracted and was able to complete his sentence speaks very, very highly of Paul. Calling very Nick Stern. Paul. Calling Nick Stern. Right, Tom, what's on the show? Well, we have some amazing guests for you today. We have taken the last week. We're recording this. Wait, 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 wait. Before we go there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think it would be a good thing to explain uh, what the race to zero is, which is Mm. actually two concepts that are being brought together. Let me start with the second. The second is the zero, race to zero, right? What does zero mean? Because frankly, when you think of zero, it sort of has a negative connotation, Um, In this case, it has a very positive connotation. The zero means that we know from science, and it has already been embedded into the Paris Agreement, that we have to be at zero net emissions by 2050. So that's where the zero comes from. Well, the Paris Agreement actually says in the second half of the century. Now, we're pulling that forward because science has become more granular and more critical. Right. But yes. So by 2050, at the latest. Yeah. But um, like the Climate Pledge says, 2040 is even better. But that's where the zero is. The zero is about zero net emissions. And the race piece, because it's called race to zero, is there to remind us that timing is really important. If there's one factor that is absolutely critical about climate change is time. Because one 
ton emitted today has much more negative effect on climate change than mm. one ton emitted five years from now because of the cumulative nature of greenhouse gases. So it is a race. It is a race against time. We used to say swallow the alarm clock, if you remember in the good old days. <laughs> swallow the alarm clock because this really is a race. So that's why it is called a race to zero. And that is why it is part of this journey toward COP26 to have under the big umbrella of race to zero everything that um, civil society, corporations, cities, everyone who is not a national government will be covered by the race to zero effort. Awesome. Okay, so just just to, so we've got the governments that are going, they're getting there ready to, for Paris, and the race to zero is, is I think everybody. Glasgow, Glasgow, Glasgow. Not getting Good ready point. for Paris. Yeah, okay, no, yeah, yeah. just right. checking there. Um, sometimes <laughs> your interruptions are annoying. Sometimes they're actually very helpful because I'm talking rubbish. So look, yeah, we've got the governments getting ready towards Glasgow, but we've also got yeah, you, you brushed over it, but I just really want to emphasize for the listeners: um, corporations, investors, cities, states regions, civil society. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Like we're all in this together. And that's so exciting that we can be kind of united under a single brand, a single concept. <gasps> oh, so invigorating. Was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so who's on? So in the course of the next 30 minutes, you are going to hear from Alok Sharma, the COP president designate, who will be the president of COP26 in Glasgow. Patricia Espinoza, the Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, Christiana's successor. Nigel Topping, the UK's high-level champion for climate action. And from Marianne Hitt, who for 10 years ran the Beyond Coal campaign in the US and is now the campaigns director for the Sierra Club. We learned a lot from these conversations, so let's head into them now. And at the end, we'll come back to you, Christiana and Paul, to sum it up. Here we go. Alec, what a true delight and an honor to have you on our podcast. Um, I, I've been thinking about what you bring to COP26 as a person. Because um, I had the pleasure of working with quite a few COP presidents and noticed that um, although every single COP president has very similar terms of reference in terms of the multilateral role and the neutrality that has to be achieved, every COP president brings a very different background and experience to the job. And you are quite unique because A, you are definitely a UK citizen, but you were born in India. You were a development secretary. You have now uh, just come from Gabon, Ethiopia, India, Nepal, Egypt. I am guessing, but I would love to hear from you, that all of this background has actually shaped your sense of adaptation, of resilience, of climate justice, all of those issues that frankly are at the heart of the global South position in a negotiation. Is, am I overreaching? Uh, Christiana, you, you never overreach. Um, <laughs> look, firstly, it's a great honor to be on this podcast. I'm really pleased to be here. And, you know, I'm speaking to you from, from, from Paris. Uh, I, I've just had a really good meeting with uh, 
uh, Laurent Fabius, and, and tomorrow I'm having an opportunity to meet with uh, a great friend of this podcast, uh, Laurence Dubiana, as, as well. That's the voice of the Right Honourable Alok Sharma MP, COP President-Designate. He will be overseeing the negotiations in Glasgow at the end of this year, and his role could not be more important. We are all, um, at the end of the day, crafted by the experiences that we have uh, through our, our career, through our life. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the first trip I did, uh, almost a year ago, actually, um, in, in this role before I went full-time, was to New York, to the UN. And um, I met a lot of the perm reps. And I, I remember one particular meeting really vividly. Uh, and we were sitting with uh, the perm reps from uh, the small island developing states, from some of the developing nations, and we were going around the table and I was asking each of them, uh, what, what does climate change mean for you? And we got to the perm rep for one of the uh, small island developing states and she just said, she said, you know, if we don't fix this, I'm not going to have a place to call home. And uh, that was the point at which, very early on in this role, that it brought it home to me just how stark this is for very many people who uh, weren't necessarily responsible for uh, creating the situation we're in. This year, Five years after adopting the Paris Agreement, we meet its first test. Countries must increase their commitments to ensure that we can realise the goals of that agreement. As the UK is hosting the Conference of the Parties this year, Alok Sharma, as the president, is responsible for bringing nations together on climate this November in Glasgow. He's been to India, Nepal, Ethiopia, Gabon and Egypt in just the last few weeks. And today, he's talking to us from Paris. Although a member of the UK government for a long time, in this role, he has to advocate on the part of everyone, all people, all countries, to build a unified action framework that shows collective progress. It's a tough job and an incredibly important one. You know, it's been a really difficult year. I mean, before I, I went full-time, I was uh, the business minister in our, in our government. Uh, and, uh, you know, we deployed, along with lots of other governments around the world, significant uh, uh, financial support uh, for businesses, for, for jobs, for people's livelihoods. And that was absolutely the right thing to do. But the interesting thing, I think, with this is that we are at this point where we're going to have to recover. And I think that actually, and you're seeing this in the statements that are being made by governments around the world, is that they have understood that the way you recover and the way you recover better is by doing it in a green and sustainable way. Uh, and I, I just look at the, the UK, and I'm sorry to be a bit parochial about this, but, but since I was, I was part of, of, of some of our plans that we put together, which we announced last year. So we, we announced a, a plan um, for a green industrial revolution. And this was about uh, ensuring that we were putting government money, leveraging in uh, multiples of that from the private sector, and then creating very many tens of thousands of jobs in uh, sunrise industries, uh, those, those green jobs that we all want to see. 
Uh, and I, I think, um, you know, for, for lots of people uh, uh, around the world, they, they will not be uh, sort of focused, you know, all the time on uh, climate action issues. Uh, but I think what's important for us as part of the COP process and, and more generally is to connect with them and to demonstrate to people that actually uh, having uh, a green recovery, ensuring that our environment uh, is, is getting better, is also consistent with an economic recovery and with value-added jobs, high-productivity jobs in the future. And I just point at the UK and other countries will, will have the same similar statistics, is that the last 30 years, we've managed to grow through successive governments, I would say, our economy by 75%, and yet we have cut emissions by 43%. I mean, green growth is absolutely possible. And I think that is what collectively through the G7, the G20, we all need to be pushing. Getting behind a green recovery sounds like an excellent pathway to shift the pace of climate action. As you will have heard on this podcast previously, most economists have been concerned that recovery finance is not moving in a sufficiently green direction and public support for doing so is vital. We've heard Joe Biden emphasise green recovery and job creation as he took office. But what does all this mean to ordinary people? Is the COP just a distant government process? Can it or should it be meaningful for everyone else? Uh, we collectively, all of us, want this COP to be the most inclusive COP ever. Uh, and I know it's a you know it's a, it's a high benchmark to set, but because we've had great COPs in the past. Uh, but I, for me, that is really important. And um, so we've set up a, a number of advisory groups. We've got a civil society and, and youth advisory group. And civil society, um, I mean, I take my inspiration from. Uh, civil society groups and youth groups that I meet around the world. I mean, I've just uh, come back from from uh, Nepal and uh, they're meeting young people who are right at the forefront of climate action is so, so inspiring. Um, but what is really important is that the advisory groups that we have, we need to make sure that they feel that they're having a real voice in how COP is put together, uh, you know, what we are trying to achieve on the road to COP. Um, we've got a, a, a civil society youth advisory group. We've got two co-chairs, one um, young activist from the Global North, one from the Global South. And one of the first meetings we had, uh, I, I think there was some scepticism where people said, well, you know, is this, you just brought us together. It's just some sort of talking shop. And I was very clear that that is not what we are doing. And we've got a, a, a ministerial meeting at the end of this month, looking at finance, looking at, at, at development. And civil society is going to be very much part of that conversation with donor countries and also developing countries, that they have to be part of this conversation if we're going to succeed. This episode of Outrage and Optimism is the first in our series about the Race to Zero, this initiative that makes space for everybody to play their part on the road to Glasgow and to embolden governments to take meaningful action. It's not about two weeks in Glasgow in November. The road from here to there is vital and it's where we're going to make the change. So how is Alok Sharma using his role to gather real momentum? I think uh, uh, this, uh, this question of um, uh, and what we do over the next eight months is, is absolutely critical. And we have a, a, a number of um, uh, big events coming up at uh, leader level. Uh, so, uh, obviously, uh, along the road, we will have uh, the G7, which is presided over by the UK. And you've already seen some of the statements that have, that have come out in terms of uh, wanting to build back better and, and achieve a, a, a just transition and a, and a green recovery. Um, 
And we've got the G20, uh, which, of course, is presided over by our uh, Italian uh, partners and friends who are uh, co-hosting COP26 as well. And along the way, there will be a, a, a number of other events and summits that are coming up. And I think what we want to see is, the, is if I can put it like this, the green thread of climate action and commitments coming through at those, those events. Um, uh, you know, we've got a, the, the U.S. Uh, is great to have them back in the, in the front line in the fight against uh, climate change. Uh, the U.S., of course, uh, President Biden will be uh, hosting an event at the end of April. Uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, you know, what commitments come forward there, both obviously from the U.S., but, but, but others as well. So it is building. Uh, and um, I hope uh, if we're able to do that and we work closely together uh, with partners around the world, we will get to a point uh, where we will be able to have uh, success at COP26. And what I would also say is that I think people are willing for COP26 to be a success. That's been one of the, the, the key takeaways from me on the visits that I have done uh, this year to countries around the world. It doesn't matter where you go. Uh, yes, people will have different views, but they are willing for this to be a success because they understand this matters so much for them and their populations uh, and for the world and indeed for future generations. for giving me this opportunity to share with you and uh, with your audience some thoughts about COP26, which is, in my view, uh, really the credibility test for humanity on the fight against climate change. That's Patricia Espinoza, Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Patricia succeeded Christiana in this role and has to preside over the multilateral organization that oversees this first test of the Paris Agreement that marked the success of the previous executive secretary's role. Christiana asked her what she sees as the main keys to success on the road to COP26. First of all, promises made must be promises kept. And that relates to mitigation goals, but it also relates to finance. It relates to finance, to the 100 billion goal of resources to be mobilized to support developing countries that are not yet on the table. The next point would be raise ambitions and lower emissions. This year at COP, we need to see updated NDCs that really bring the world to in a, on a path that allows us to reach the goals by the Paris Agreement. We are not yet there. And uh, this is very, very important. And the ambitions need to relate not only to mitigation, they have to relate also to adaptation and finance. It is one integrated agenda. And the last point would be that we need to get everybody's voice and everybody's contributions and solutions on board. We should not leave anybody behind. These are the four points that I deem absolutely necessary for a successful COP26. Could I go back to your point number 
two, which was raise ambition and lower emissions, because uh, the UNFCCC Secretariat has recently released your synthesis report, and I'm sure you were appalled, if I may put a word into your mouth, uh, to see that currently we're only at 1% reduction by 2030 as compared to, uh, to our 2010 levels. That is definitely not where we should be. The IPCC has said that we need to be at minimum at 45%, if not 50% by 2030. What, does, what do those numbers tell you? Well, uh, first of all, Christiana, it tells us that we really need to take decisions now. This is the year, this is the moment where we need to take decisions. It tells us that even though the NDC report is only a partial view because it does not cover all the parties to the Paris Agreement, and we are certainly hoping that in the next months we will have uh, uh, many more parties, including important big emitters, coming forward with very, um, uh, really uh, very ambitious plans. Uh, in spite of that, it tells us that the uh, feasibility, the likelihood of us seeing uh, humanity on this clear path to the 1.5 degrees under the Paris Agreement is still not there. So I certainly hope that uh, seeing this report early in the year will allow parties to really look at what else they can do in order to increase their ambitions, in order to increase their goals under in their NDCs so that we can have a better picture by November when we meet in Glasgow. I think it just demonstrates to everyone that there is still a long way to go when it comes to those, those NDCs. Back to Alok Sharma again. You know, when, when I'm going around the world, I'm taking a very consistent message. Uh, uh, and Christiana talked about some of the countries I've been to, I'll be doing more traveling, but it's a very consistent message, is that we want all countries to come forward with ambitious near-term uh, emissions reductions targets, those NDCs by 2030, uh, to sign up to, uh, to net zero. Uh, I mean, the good news when it comes to net zero is that over the past year, we've seen a, a real move. So 70% uh, of the world economy is now covered by a net zero target, which is very good news. But actually, what also really matters are those near-term targets of 2030 to show that you're on the pathway. Uh, and that's been one of the key uh, messages, uh, uh, as well as uh, on finance and adaptation. So that's where the race to zero comes in. Translating pledges and goals into concrete decisions today is the only way to make sure the 2030, 2040 and 2050 goals are possible. Patricia Espinoza explains why. First of all, to say uh, that the race to zero is, um, is really and expresses very clearly the willingness of those who are making these pledges to become carbon neutral by 2050 to be aligned to the goals of the Paris Agreement. So I think that's very, very, very important. Um, of course, what we need to see still is those pledges being reflected in the immediate plans, in the immediate policies, immediate decisions that 
need to be taken. So this applies, of course, to countries, to governments, but it also applies to private sector. Okay, if you, with your company, are making a pledge to become uh, carbon neutral by 2050, then what are you going to do today? How does it match with the decisions that you are taking today? And there, what we are seeing uh, so far still is a certain gap between these, these goals, the net zero goals, and the current plans. And this is where uh, we want to link those longer term goals with immediate action. We need to be very conscious and the, the message here is we will not get to those uh, medium term goals unless we take immediate actions and decisions today. Another uh, aspect uh, regarding uh, the net zero pledge has to do with the fact that seeing not only governments, but also private sector, cities, civil society, different kinds of entities making these pledges is absolutely crucial because we know that the fulfillment of the goals of the Paris Agreement are not going to be possible only by the action of governments. Governments, yes, they have a central responsibility. They also have a central responsibility in creating the environments in which all those entities within their countries can make the transformation that is necessary. But governments cannot make the transformation for anybody else. The capacity of governments to act on the field is limited. As powerful as governments, governments are, and they are, right? But uh, in this regard, it's extremely important. It's there, or, or communities, it's there where the transformations need to take place. So what do we need to see? Yes, we need governments at all levels taking decisions to enact the right policies, to have the right legislation in place so that then businesses can make the right decisions will do the right decision so that businesses can uh, really um, have incentives in order to become, for example, to move from fossil fuel energy sources toward renewable energy sources, uh, that businesses can move towards a much more sustainable way of uh, operating in all areas. If you, uh, no matter whether it is water, it is waste, it is the use of uh, raw materials. So it is absolutely crucial. Governments alone will not make the transformation. We need everyone on board. One of the most important things to remember as we're trying to move the world off of fossil fuels is that fossil fuels are causing very real harm and damage in people's lives today. Marianne Hitt is the campaign's director for the Sierra Club, a U.S. grassroots environmental organization. Marianne led the Beyond Coal campaign for 10 years, which successfully closed 
two-thirds of coal-fired power plants through community activism and advocacy. Paul talked to Marianne to learn more about their work to end fossil fuels in the energy sector. They are creating smog that is triggering asthma attacks in kids. They are spilling coal ash into rivers and spilling oil onto beaches. They are fracking and contaminating people's drinking water. There are pipelines running through people's communities. You could go on and on. And so people are very motivated when they realize there's a threat to their children or their health or their community. Uh, people are very motivated to get involved. And I think sometimes we forget as we're working to tackle this challenge of, of, of the climate crisis, that we're not just talking about benefits for our grandchildren. We are talking about cleaner air today, cleaner water today. Hmm. It's, it's very hard to argue against uh, your children being able to kind of breathe properly. Um, but I'm, you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty direct, you know, it's pretty kind of in your face as it were. I mean, does it affect how polluting companies respond to your campaigns when presented with the human cost? You know, what, what, what can you say you've learned? And this is a real area of fascination for me. What would you say you've learned about how, how companies respond and how it's best to interact with companies? Well, in our experience, um, if you there are a couple of different in the Beyond Coal campaign, a couple of different main companies we have interacted with. The one is the electric utilities, and really, what we are calling for from them is to make electricity in a different way. Um, so they uh, they looking ahead, they make long term plans about how they're going to generate electricity, and we're pushing them to move towards 100% clean energy. And every time they make a decision about whether to invest in a coal plant, whether to build a gas plant, whether to b expand their clean energy, they're making a, a very big you know, choice in one direction or the other. And so with those companies, we sit down and we're just very clear about what we're working towards. And we want to know uh, how can we help them get there? Um, and if we can't help them get there, then we might have to campaign against them and hold them accountable. Um, but to make that shift and to do that shift in a way that makes sure that low-income communities and communities of color don't get left behind. Uh, so that's the conversation we try to have with those electric utilities. Um, I think the coal mining companies, and I live in West Virginia where we have a lot of those coal mining companies, um, you know, that conversation I think is about taking care of their workers, their responsibilities to their workers, taking care of the communities that they have profited from for many generations um, and not just pulling up stakes and leaving folks behind uh, as we continue to move away from coal, but to to live up to the responsibilities they have to their workers and to the communities that they've profited from for a long time. The fight for clean energy doesn't just end when pledges are made. Ordinary citizens are often the ones who step up, whether born activists or not. The point is that we have the blueprint in the form of the Paris Agreement and in the past five years, the technologies we need have proliferated. The voices of youth, indigenous people and activists have been incredibly important on the ground and at the government negotiations during previous COP meetings. There's a very important role for activists to hold them accountable when they're not do doing what the climate science demands or not even doing what they have publicly said they're going to do. We just actually released a report in January grading every single electric utility in the United States on just whether it's actually on track to live up to the commitments it has made around climate and emissions. And 
a lot of the electric utilities did not get a very good grade because they're making big promises about 2050, but in this decade, they don't have retirement dates for their coal plants. They're still building gas plants and they're not building enough clean energy. So holding them accountable and calling that out is an important role of advocates as uh, you know, other folks across the environmental community are also working in partnership with them and, and working to move things forward. But advocacy plays a really key role. Wherever you live, you can get involved and you can push those decisions in the direction of clean air and clean water and clean energy and a safe climate. And I have seen that in the Beyond Coal campaign. I have seen a grassroots movement over a decade reduce our use of coal from half of our electricity to 20% of our electricity in just a decade. And have we have helped usher in this clean energy era uh, that is creating lots of economic opportunity and is saving thousands of lives. And so that is the kind of progress we can make when people get involved wherever they are. And that's what we need more and more people to do in this very critical decade ahead. Now, you are the most brilliant activist, uh, one of the most brilliant in the world, well, with your fantastic organization. Now, tell me, is activism something that only appeals to certain kinds of people and not other kinds of people? Or have you learned that anyone can be an activist? You know, what, what, what turns people into activists? Anyone can absolutely be an activist. I know some people who are much more reluctant activists. Um, sometimes it happens when a threat lands on your doorstep. Here in my little community in West Virginia, uh, there's a Danish company called Rockwell that's trying to build an insulation factory that would be fueled by coal and fracked gas. And people have come out of the woodwork in this community because they don't want a heavy polluting industrial facility uh, built here. It literally would be uh, a few hundred yards away from, a few hundred meters away from an elementary school. So moments like that make people activists when they realize there's some sort of threat on their doorstep or in their backyard. Um, but I also think that when, when you look around the world, well, let me say this another way. When there is some problem out there in the world that you just can't stop thinking about, you just keep thinking somebody should do something about that. Like why, why is it that kids are hungry? Why is it that our air and water are polluted? Why is it that we, we, our climate is spinning towards a point of no return? And you think somebody should do something about that. Maybe that person is you. Listen to that voice inside of you that won't let you stop thinking about that because maybe that person is you and you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be an economist. You don't have to be a politician. Whoever you are, wherever you are, with the tools you already have, whether you're an artist or a teacher or a young person, you can make a difference just listening to that little voice that says somebody should do something about that. Maybe that person is you. Nigel, it's Tom. How are you doing? Hi, Tom. I got I got a very strange it's an international call, 0888 I thought that's very dodgy. I probably should answer it. Uh, I'm 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 calling incognito is my it's my way of doing things, as I think you probably know. <laughs> Listen, I think it's so Nigel Topping, great friend of this podcast, high-level climate action champion for COP26, is a neighbor of mine. But he's also a tricky man to get hold of at the moment. 
And so I'm calling you. Where are you right now? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in Nairobi in Kenya, and you can probably hear I'm sitting outside. The cicadas are going mad, but I'm having a really interesting week uh, on the ground, all COVID secure, but looking at um, a lot of the issues around accelerating the energy transition and the EV transition and the race to zero in a very different context than at home in the UK. So I've just been um, launching with UNEP, a great program on electric motorbikes this morning. And then oh, tomorrow wow. we're talking with a private, a private sector people and the Treasury and the um, Central Bank around how to accelerate private finance. So, yeah, really interesting. Fascinating. Okay, great. So, so I asked Nigel a very simple question. Why is the race to zero so important now? I think everyone, we need to remember that the IPCC report, the scientific report on the difference between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees is only two years old. Yeah. And that really triggered a massive shift to us all realizing we've got to get to zero by 2050 at the latest, not not later in the century. So, um, and, that, and that really started to pick up last year when, when we launched the Race to Zero in June last year. And at its simplest, it's just about getting the whole of society in a rigorous way, and we'll come back to that, to commit to getting to zero by the 2040s mm. at the latest. And increasingly, we're seeing people saying 2040, 2035, 2030. And that means businesses, investors, cities, states and regions, schools, universities, sports clubs. Because when they do that, not only does it mean that they're driving momentum, but it also sends a political signal to policymakers that, oh, look, the whole of society is committed to and moving so we can be bolder and work with society so that we get that that feedback loop of ambition going faster and faster and faster. And, and it's crucial now because of, of the pivotal nature of COP26, which will be the test of the Paris Agreement. Like, are we capable collectively of ratcheting ambition to live up to the promise of the Paris Agreement? Yeah. And that's the big test. And it's so interesting. I mean, you're absolutely right. That IPCC report from two years ago just changed the game. Because before that, we thought that, you know, two degrees was a bit worse than 1.5. But now we know it's just, you know, night and day in terms of the impact on people and livelihoods and ecosystems. So we have to do everything we can right now. And are you, I mean, where you sit, like right in the middle of all of this global momentum, um, do you think that there's an understanding of the scale of change needed um, from amongst the sectors and the groups that you deal with? You know, I think it's really hard. I just think because humans were cognitively not wired to really understand what radical transformation is going to be like. Um, you know, uh, we know that cognitively we're anchored in our experience in the recent past. So I, so I think we're, we're, we're getting a better understanding of it. But just, uh, just just today, you know, Volvo have announced they're going to stop selling combustion engine cars from 2030. Mm. And a few years ago, if I'd have said to you, Volvo's going to stop announce in 2021 that they'll stop selling combustion engine cars in 2030, most people would have said, uh, you know, I'm taking yes. drugs. <laughs> because it just seems so far, so far-fetched that something as fundamental as the technology which has been our motive force for the last 100-plus years is going to be gone in 10 years. So I think it's a real, it's our, our inability to imagine radically different futures is, is often one of the biggest barriers, sometimes more than political will or technology or deployment of capital. Our ability to imagine very different futures, you know, until you can imagine it, you can't design it. Until you design it, you can't build it. Until you build it, you can't use it. So I think 
we're going to have to get much better at imagining radically different futures. Yeah, and do you think do you think people are doing that now? Because we're sort of it's kind of around now, isn't it? People can kind of sense that there's these two futures that are in front of us. Do you think that the you know the regenerative future, the one we want, is sufficiently coming into view to kind of drive change and get people to latch onto that and see what's possible? Is that happening yet? Well, I think. It- I think, I mean, at different paces in different sectors, and that, that, that's one of the reasons we launched the Race to Zero Breakthroughs to try and make sure that we accelerate to that point where you can believe in that future in every sector. I mean, you can believe it in the renewables now because of the scale of deployment and the costs coming down. I think uh, I've, I've just been at the, this morning at the launch of uh, an e-motorbike initiative, which, which United Nations Environment, um, who are based in Nairobi, have launched with partners from the private sector and local manufacturers and Chinese manufacturers, um, and the city and the city of Kazoo. Uh, uh, so I think that the fact that we, people were able to see park rangers driving electric motorbikes around meant that that's very believable to everyone else. Like, oh, yeah. my God. They're only, what do you mean they're only $200, only, only $200 cheaper to buy and way cheaper to run so that what they call the Boda Boda taxi drivers, the taxi drivers who take you on the back of their, their motorbikes, they will make more money by taking on the back of their electric motorbikes. The park rangers love them because they can sneak up on people who are poaching or stealing <laughs> logs. So once you, but once you can physically see it, then, then it's not a question of imagining it. It's, so it's just going to happen yeah. so fast. Then other things, you know, we've seen in, with like the impossible food, you know, some of the new alternative um, proteins. Um, until you've tasted one of those burgers, um, it's hard to believe that it's possible or that it will ever compete. So there is something about getting to the point where something's been invented and is out there and you can actually touch it, see it, feel it, taste it. But then when that happens, I think things could go really, really fast. The only thing that really matters now is time. History will look back at the 2020s as the most decisive decade in human history, the period that we're living through right now. The choices that we make, the choices we're making, will determine the future that our generation and all generations yet to come will inhabit. There are encouraging signs, but the rubber's going to have to hit the road a lot quicker if we're going to win this race. We are still a million miles away from enough, enough ambition or enough momentum. And I think the, the, the UNFCCC report is a really stark reminder of that. As you say, it doesn't include the realisation of all the recent commitments. So the, you know, the States and China, which we expect to see their much more ambitious NDCs in the next few months. So, that, that, so the situation will improve by the time we get to Glasgow. I think then, it, and it, of course, it only includes national commitments because that's the it's, it's a multilateral process. If you if you overlay the momentum we're seeing in the real economy, which is a mixture of investors, cities, and businesses, on for example um, uh, that transition to electric vehicles, which we've talked about so much, you know, you can be very confident that that's going to happen much quicker than on average is included in NDC. So you've got a, a bump up from what the national plans say because they don't capture. Um, the, the, the pace of the, that the economy is going at right now. But even if you add all those up, we still won't be on a 1.5 degree trajectory. So I think we can be hopeful that at Glasgow, we will very significantly bend the curve to be on something much more like a two degree trajectory. But we need to keep on the pressure and keep ratcheting to get down to that being on a below 1.5 degree trajectory. So that's a lot to take in, but in the spirit of outrage and optimism, we also wanted to ask our guests, on a scale of outrage to optimism, 
Where do you fall? I've been really optimistic on the race to zero and mitigation. Um, I'm feeling uh, less optimistic, but, but, but working on it, on the resilience, which has had not enough attention and needs to be much, mobilised much more. And the area that I think I'm least optimistic that needs the most attention is the mobilisation of global finance. And just, I don't mean they're just the 100 billion commitment from global north to global south, which is crucial because it's a promise that must be met. I mean, that we really need to turn the conversation to the 4 trillion, which is what the World Bank estimates, needs to be mobilised in total every year to the investments in mitigation and resilience in the global south. And most of that's going to have to be private sector money. So we need to make sure we're talking about how do we leverage that in. Otherwise, we win on the 100 billion, but, but lose the war, as it were. So yeah, that, that, in race to zero, really optimistic. Race to resilience getting better. The race to trillions, um, uh, I think we've got a long way to go. That's Nigel. Mentioning also the race to resilience and climate finance, two massive areas that we'll be discussing in much greater depth later on in this series. I just have such a deep belief in the power that we have at our fingertips to transform the world in the next decade. Marianne Hitt. And I know it's not going to be easy, and I know the forces opposing all these changes we need to make are powerful, but I think that the creativity and the determination of grassroots folks around the world is more powerful. I think the people who are fighting for the safety of their kids and their families and the places that they love is more powerful, and I think we're going to do incredible things together over the next decade. And Patricia Espinoza. I think I am both. I am very concerned, but I am also very optimistic. I am very concerned because uh, what we need to achieve by COP26, which is now only about eight months away, is really very, very much. We need to build a comprehensive package of decisions, actions, of outcomes that reflect the interest of all countries of all these uh, uh, multitude of realities around the world. And that is not an easy task. But I am optimistic because we have the solutions. We have the resources because we have the pathway. We know what we need to do. And we are seeing also in at the international level some very encouraging signs. So we stand ready to work together really hand in hand with everyone to be able to increase that ambition and come forward out of uh, COP26 with a positive message to the world. We are on track. So, how wonderful at this point in this critical year to get this chance to talk to all these amazing people. And I just have to say, listening to them all, I just have such gratitude for them being right in the heart of this complex and difficult process. And it's a long road still to Glasgow, right? And we know what it's like to be in those jobs and how hard that can be. But I mean, we should all be grateful in the environmental community. We have brilliant people who are leading these processes. What do you guys leave those discussions with? What have you come away with? Yeah, I'm also filled with gratitude since we have, you know, stood in their shoes. Um, we know how um, how stressful this is to be eight months out 
of um, a cop and know that so much has to be done that uh, you still have to reach out to every single country, to every sector, to every company. The the outreach that needs to be done and in order to find that force that is going to bring everyone to do more than they currently think that they can. That's the mental shift that needs to occur from now until then. Because these reports that we talked about at the beginning, they're really devastating. Yeah, they're desperate. And 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 we absolutely have to get out of that MO, out of that mode of operation. So we first have to change people's hearts and minds to understand that that may be what we're where we are, but we have to step up. We have to get to a much, much better and deeper level of commitment by a over the next eight months, I was heartened to hear from Alok that in his travels, um, he has seen that all governments want success in um, in Glasgow, and they know what success means. Yeah. So they all know that everyone needs to step up. I think the commitment to stepping up is actually going to come from the governments because they will recognize that there is so much civil society, private um, sector, investor, um, financial sector, corporate engagement. And I think as we saw in Paris, once that is recognized, that governments are not doing this on their on their own, that they're actually benefiting from a lot of push forward from everyone else, what we called in those times the surround sound effect. Mm. I think once they recognize that the surround sound effect is here again, they will be able to step up in a much more courageous way. Mm. Yeah, well, I don't know about you girls, but here's what I think. I'm really drawn to uh, the comments last week by Dr. Catherine Wilkinson on our show where she spoke of multi-solving for our entangled crisis. Hmm. When I see such talented people together, when I see such uh, positive uh, indications with the the new Biden White House, you know, committing the US to not just being back in the game, but helping to use the geopolitical power of the US to, to, to pull us forward. Um, I think Anything's possible, but it is all about us in this year bringing these ingredients. You know, they, they cracked open the eggs and we got the whatever, or the vegan equivalent, and the stuff's in the bowl and, and we're stirring it, right? But we, we in this year, we really have to deliver some some a beautiful, fantastic dish based upon uh, collaborative, good culinary intent. You know, we 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 we, we have no time to, to 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 muck up in this kitchen because the world is hungry for a result. Hmm. Paul, that was quite an analogy for someone who has no idea how to cook <laughs> and who never cooks. Yeah, I, I'm also confused as to what this vegan egg thing that Paul's making <laughs> is going to do. Someone's going to be like a, a vegan egg billionaire, trillionaire, by the way. So just like keep an eye out. You know, there's some food scientist now is like making eggs out of peas. And I'm telling you, they're going to do very, very well. Eggs out of peas. Okay, that, yeah. That's, I eat probably, burgers yeah. made out of peas, by the way. I eat Beyond Meat burgers. You know, they're delicious. Clay's uh, telling us it. they're delicious. Yeah. Yeah, there you uh, go. Um, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What about the Impossible Burgers? Oh, yes, exactly. Can't leave them out. Uh, it's Beyond Meat and Impossible, two fantastic brands. Impossible Burgers are a superb company, which I believe has managed <laughs> to have the incredible good fortune to become associated with you, Christiana. Exactly. 
We will shall delve more into Impossible Burgers, which I know is a favourite topic of everyone on this podcast. But I just wanted to say also, and I'd be curious to know your reflections, Christiana, but I see so much in the things we talked about today that is sort of the grown-up version of the sort of, you know, early seeds that we were involved in years ago. And it just yes. I, it's just so interesting to see how these brilliant people have come in, taken this forward, made it so much stronger, built momentum. Um, it's really heartening to see how that process of the international engagement as well as the non-state actors just builds and gets stronger and deepens and gets more mature and more complex. It's It's really interesting. Yeah, I see so many similarities, right, of the process that we built toward um, Paris. I see so many similarities. But as you say, it is a bigger, better version of what we build for Paris, um, in part because we have five more years uh, of, or six by the time we get to Glasgow, six more years of experience, but also in part because the moment needs it, right? Yeah. Because because we now have so much more science and we're so much more apprised of the um, of the urgency with which the transformation needs to take place. So given the fact that the demand for action is so much greater and, um, and so much more, let's call it overwhelming, it's actually good to know that the supply of leadership is stepping up. Yeah. For sure. And and just in part of that, let's not forget, you know, the extraordinary acts of kind of civil disobedience in different parts of the world that have been a necessary Indeed. part of raising yeah. awareness, you know, uh, from, from Extinction Rebellion to Jane Fonda, you know, getting arrested on Fridays for the future. I mean, that's, you know, that's real integrity. Uh, millions of school children have been on strike to alert their parents to the fact that they, they feel they're being exposed to unacceptable risk. I mean, these are completely unprecedented actions in the history of the world. And, and they're all contributing to the enormous sense of concentration upon this year. So, yeah, I mean... Well, you know, I was thinking about that when we asked um, the president-designate how certain he was that we would have a COP26 in person. Will we be able to come in person? And he's... And that was before the interview, I think, yeah. Yeah, which is why I'm summarizing now, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for summarizing. (laughs) Please So continue. when we asked, yes, please, I was trying. When we asked um, the president-designate how certain he, um, he was that we might be able to come to COP26 in Glasgow in person versus on Zoom, um, and clearly they're devoting a lot of time to planning exactly that because Zoom meetings or any other technology meetings are great, but there is a huge component of just personal interaction that is absolutely key to any negotiation. So he's very determined to make that happen. But I was also thinking, does that mean that by um, by the time COP26 rolls around, um, and hopefully before, we will be able to see young people back on the streets? Mm. Wouldn't that be wonderful yeah. if we could actually have that civil disobedience back on the streets as well? Absolutely. Um, now, I know we're going to have to wrap up in just a sec, but I cannot resist, Christiana, before we sign off. You have been in those seats. You've been the person who had the buck stops here written on your desk in the lead up to Paris. If you were sitting in that seat now, would you be feeling outraged about our lack of progress or optimistic about our chances? 
You know, as you well know, Tom, we were, you know, hit by really bad reports the whole time that we were preparing um, Paris. And so the fact that these two last reports are such a deep hit should not take us by surprise because we know that this this is going to come. So what what do we do with that information? We double down. We double down and we go something that begins with SH and then we go and therefore... We are doubling down on this. There is no way, no way that that can then let us sit back or cowered back in fear. It, this is absolutely the moment to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and double down on the efforts because we have to do this. Failure is not an option. Love it. Mm. And I don't think you meant shyness, Christiana. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> and I understand our social media channels are going to be taken over by a group of young people on Friday the 19th of March. Yay. Who will be campaigning for, uh, how can I put it? I don't. It feels kind of weird to say self-preservation, but it's pretty re- good reason to be passionate. <laughs> life. How about life Passion on this planet? Life. Campaigning for self-preservation. It's quite a thing to campaign for. Absolutely. <laughs> Right. I demand my right to exist. It's continue existing. All right, friends, this has been fun. First Race to Zero episode. Listeners, there is more coming your way. We really hope you've enjoyed it. We have really enjoyed pulling this together. This is the year, as Christiana said, we've got some bad stuff coming at us, but that means this is the moment to double down. We have everything to play for in this critical year. We've got some great people driving us forward. Let's get behind it. Let's make it count. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Zero. So there you go. Our first episode in the Race to Zero series. How are you guys liking this music? It's good, right? Thank you to Mally and the team at Phase Music for this amazing remix. They did uh, both the original theme song and the remix that you're hearing right now. And as you hear it more, you'll pick up like these little details they masterfully mixed in. Um, I think we should actually have Mally on to explain a little bit about it and talk through it. Uh, anyway, amazing work. We are jamming to this music in our Zoom meetings. It's uh, It's really fun. So thank you. Okay, but on with it. Uh, My name is Clay. I'm the producer of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If this is your first time with us, welcome. It's so good to have you. Every week we publish an episode surrounding the outrage and optimism both needed in the climate crisis. And you can join us here by hitting the subscribe button. And in between now and our next episode, we have a full catalog of episodes out for your immediate podcast binging needs. So whether you listen while doing the dishes, while out for a walk, or while you should be working, no judgment here. Those episodes are available to stream right now. Enjoy. Okay, Outrage and Optimism is a global optimism production. Our executive producer is Sharon Johnson, and this episode was produced by Daniel Curtis and Clay Carnell. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Marina Mantilla-Germán, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, and John Ward. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Paul Dickinson, and Tom Rivet-Karnak. Thank you to our guests, the Right Honorable Alak Sharma, MP, President-Designate of COP26, Executive Secretary Patricia Espinosa of the UNFCCC, 
Sierra Club National Director of Campaigns, Mary Ann Hitt, and of course, our friend and sometimes co-host, high-level climate action champion for COP26, Nigel Topping. I'm really feeling the energy of this song as I'm recording this. You can join our guests on the road to COP26 by checking the show notes for links to all of their social media pages. And we've included some searchable hashtags for COP26. Just go check it out. It's very nicely organized. Okay, this is the part of the podcast where I tell you what you already know, which is that this podcast is available on Apple Podcasts. But what you might not know is that when you leave a review, we read it. Your reviews have started making their way into our regular weekly brief for the show, and sometimes they even make it on the podcast. So it helps so much to spread the word about our show if you leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. So thank you. And last but certainly not least, we are online and posting about it. And by it, I mean stubborn optimism. Intrigued? At Global Optimism on all social media channels. Give us a follow send us a message. We have more episodes in our Race to Zero series coming. We'll be releasing about once a month or so, so keep an eye out for that. But next week, another episode of our regular Outrage and Optimism format. So hit subscribe and we'll see you then. Race to zero!